Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Turn to your neighbor and say, good morning. Smile. It's always good and welcome. Well, Lord, we thank you when we get to be in your house with your people and grow and be better people. So, Lord, change us in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Turn to Romans chapter 8, and this is the third and last week we're going to cover this passage. I've enjoyed it. I've never dug so deep in a verse I've known a long time, but I've never really studied it. We're talking about the very best promise on earth, and we're part three, Romans 8. Now, just a little heads up. Christians always need to be alert. There's a special election coming up for us that live in Jesmond County. It's about two weeks away, November 2nd. This is special because a senator whose seat is up passed away. And so this is for people in Jesmond, Garrett, Mercer, Washington, and the western part of Fayette County. These are the two candidates. Uh, Democrat attorney Helen uh, Burkle-Mez and then Dr. Don Douglas, Republican. You vote however you choose, but Christians should vote and vote your values, vote biblical values. Okay, you got it? Okay, let me tell you a true story from this past week. Uh, This man... Uh, Behan Mutlu, it's not easy to say, age 50, had a night out on the town. And he was drinking with his buddies in a bar in Turkey. And this is about where it happened. You see the little red dot? And he got sleepy. And he decided not to go home because he knew how his wife would respond So he just walked a short distance into the forest and he went to sleep. That's his town. And his wife got concerned because he didn't come home that night and he did not respond to her cell phone calls. She called the police. And the police decided to mount a rescue operation to find her husband. So they searched high and low for hours during the night, calling his name all the time. He is drunk and asleep in the forest. They're all around him. Finally, he woke up from all the commotion And he rubbed his eyes and he was wondering what all these people were doing in the forest with flashlights. He rightly discerned there was probably a missing person that they were looking for. And being a civic-minded gentleman, he decided to join the search. So Muhan, Buhan, Duhan, whatever his name was, he didn't know they were looking for him. So he helped search for four hours for himself. 
And finally, the guy beside him called out his name in the dark and he turned and said, well, who are you looking for? And they told him. And he said, well, that's me. Here I am right here. I don't know if he'd sobered up yet or not, but that is his chagrined photograph right there. And this day and time, you do something awfully stupid. Somebody records it and sends it around the world where some preacher 8,000 miles away is telling you're dirt. <laughs> Have you ever had a night like that? You wondered who you were and where you were. I know a lot of people today that are, are might bewildered. Somebody asked famed explorer in Kentucky, Daniel Boone, if he ever got lost. He said, no, I've never been lost, but I was a mite bewildered for three days. <laughs> I know a lot of people that are bewildered. They cannot find their purpose. They have no direction and they may be 20 or they may be 50. And they're wondering if God loves them and God has a plan for their life. Now, the passage that we will go back to again today is one of the best passages that talks about purpose and how much heaven loves every person on this planet. So Romans 8, you got your Bibles? Hold your Bibles up. Let me see your Bibles. Got them? Excellent. And I will read it again. And we know that God causes some things, a few things, half things, to work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. 29 and 30 are complicated, difficult verses. Let me read it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that, so that means everything above has to do with everything below now. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, what did he do? I'm sorry, what did he do? He also glorified. So in review, I suggest you at least memorize verse 28. Why memorize verse 28? Because brother, sister, you're going to need it. This morning in my prayer time, I'm quoting verse 28 because I needed it. Paul wrote, we know, everyone say it, we know. All things, say it. Work together, say it. For what? To those who love God. Now notice, you have these two qualifiers. You can't claim the verse unless you qualify for the two points. Do you love God? Is that a yes or no? And secondly, those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for you. Do you sense that calling? Do you sense that stirring? Will you say yes to him? Now, let's go to verse 29. And Paul is going to take us through nine 
ascending principles that has to do with verse number 28. First off, he says he foreknew. Starting right off with a mystery. What, what do you mean? Foreknew. Paul alludes to it in Galatians 1 verse 15. He says he, in his testimony, he set me apart. He picked me out from my mother's womb to obey him and walk with him. And I just want to say, have you felt that too? It's amazing when I ask people that as a child, as a little one, how many of you felt God's presence and God's purpose in your life? Hold your hand up. Look at that. He set you apart too. He has a purpose for you too. Now this is from the prophet Jeremiah who was called as a teenager. And I want you to read this with me please. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. Isn't that amazing? Before he was conceived. And then read this, please. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I had a purpose. I had a calling for you. And you have a calling. And it's a big calling. And it's different from anybody else on the planet. And Isaiah 49. This is, if you have never seen this in your Bible, you need to mark this in your Bible. It will not scare you. It will help you sleep good at night. Isaiah 49, verse 9 through 11. Say it, please. God declared, I am God and there is. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning. From long ago, what is not done? My plans will say it. My plans will take place. I will do my will. I have spoken, so I will bring it about. I have planned it. I will do that. Look at that middle section. He doesn't, he doesn't declare the beginning to the end. He starts at the end. He knows how everything's going to turn out. And he's there to help us. Now, this is a pastor and a writer I like a lot, Robert uh, J. Morgan. And he said this so beautifully. I didn't even attempt to reword it, and, and it's in your outline, but he wrote this. He knew and loved us from the endless ages of the infinite past. Wow. He wrote, he knew you before there even was a you to know. Before you were conceived in your mother's womb. God knew everything about you. Before your parents, before your grandparents were born, God cared very, very deeply for you. This is astounding. Before Christ died upon the cross... He already knew you, and he already loved you. Before Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, God knew you as well then as he knows you today. 
terrific. You were foreknown from the beginning of time. He knew what you would look like, your hair color, your eye color, your height, your family. He knew all that. He designed your fingerprints. He knows everything about you. He knows and has always known your innermost thoughts, your history, your problems, your struggles never surprise him. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses. And he knows the very course of your life. And he's right there beside you. Now, David, the great psalmist, wrote this. This is in New Living Translation. I love it. Would you read it with me, please? You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Which leads me to believe he's got great plans for your life. And they're all good plans. David went on to say in this same passage, Father, I can't comprehend it. It's hard to get my head around. It's so stunning. I just want to sit down and laugh or sit down and cry. And you may want to write this in your margin because you're going to talk to people who don't believe God exists or Christ didn't die for them. And you can tell them that God knew them a long time ago, even before we knew him. Now, the second point is just as wonderful. He also predestined us. Now, is predestination in the Bible? Yes, it is. Some of my hyper-Calvinist friends, I think, can take it too far, saying because he's predestined us, that means we don't have to do evangelism, we don't have to do missions, because he already knows who will be saved and who will be lost. That's not true. He's given us a great commission. He's told us to preach the gospel to every single creation. But let me just wade in on this on a very simple level. Here's the issue. One of the great mysteries is the tension. Everyone say tension. As Christians, I think you have to learn to live with tension. There's a lot of stuff I have to suspend my judgment because I'm just not smart enough to figure it out. And people that can't live in tension, they have to be so black and white, they have to be so detailed that if they can't figure out every single thing, they will just melt down. And there's a lot of things you just have to hold in tension, like the sovereignty of God, and the responsibility of man. Both of them are in the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, 
He said this when he was asked, well, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? He just said, I don't reconcile it at all. They're friends. I don't have to reconcile friends. I just enjoy both of them. That's pretty smart. Let me speak about this word contradiction. And I may confuse everybody in the room, but I'm just going to throw it out there and uh, hope we can get our head around it. What is a contradiction? In logic, this is a contradiction. When something cannot be what it is, when something cannot be what it is, and the same time not be what it is. That's the definition of a contradiction. The Bible does not contradict itself. Let me tell you what the Bible talks a lot about. The Bible talks about mystery. Everyone say mystery. It's full of mystery. And the longer I walk with God, the more I see mystery. And it's not repelling. It is attractive to me. That my God is so much greater than I am. And I can just rest in who he is and what he knows. Now here's the definition of a mystery. A mystery is something that is true. I'm just not smart enough to understand it. That's a mystery. On the screen is a great mystery in the scripture. How is there one God but three distinct personalities? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And my Mormon friends, my Jehovah's Witness friends, and so many other friends that have to figure it out. They can't figure it out, so they've got to start a cult. Well, I just enjoy it. I enjoy what the scripture says. Here's something else I don't understand. Maybe you're smarter than I am. You understand it. There is a ship, a big ship, aircraft carrier called the USS Gerald Ford. It was built in 2017. It probably cost $1,000 to build. I'm not even sure. <laughs> it is the largest aircraft carrier in the world. Well, how big is it, Steve? It's about 150 feet from the waterline to the top. That's that's pretty big cheap. Sure. It is 256 feet across. That's a big flight deck. That's a big flight deck. It is three football fields long. Take that to Lake Cumberland and try to turn that around. (laughs) We ordered a pontoon boat. This is not a pontoon boat. It has a crew of 5,500 men and women. It weighs 100,000 tons, and it's made up a lot of the precious metal of steel. Here's what I don't understand. Something that big can float in the water. I can't figure that out. I mean, I'm not a tiny person, but I don't float in the water very well. Just come watch. Here's something else I don't understand. I don't understand electricity. I built a couple of houses. I've done some rough in wiring. I put in some outlets. I burned up some toasters. I put some stuff in microwaves I shouldn't have and saw the 4th of July. But essentially, 
I don't understand electricity. I have to hire people that really understand it or I might go to heaven sooner than I thought I would. I just know I like light. I like heat. I like stuff in my refrigerator when it's cold. So my point is, because I don't understand something, doesn't mean I'm not going to gain the benefits just because I don't understand it. I'm perfectly at home not understanding it, just enjoying the benefits. Flip. So in short, because of God's, God's omniscience, which means what? What does that mean? He knows everything. Nothing surprises him. He apparently knows who will reject him. And apparently he knows who will receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. He knows that. But he still loves people. And he still tells us to go love them too. Because I don't know how they're going to respond. He does. This knowledge, this foreknowing, does not negate a man's free will. Because the scripture very plainly says, it's not the Father's will that any should perish. I remember being on a basketball court and I had some teenagers ask me, what's this deal about free will and God's sovereignty? I said, well, I can't explain it well, but throw me that basketball. And I said, it's kind of like this. On the bottom side of the basketball would be earth. And that is the greatest gift mankind has been given, and that is the gift of free will. The top of the basketball is the sovereignty of God. He sees all things. He knows all things. He has all things under his control, even evil. So he does know all things, and he knows how we will choose but still, that does not negate the freedom he's given us. It's the same truth from two different perspectives. The, the craziest deal of this all, are you ready? The craziest deal. Is the fact that the creator would invite people like you and me to join him in his plan. That's the craziest deal at all. You don't need me, but thanks for letting me work with you. Let me do my 2%. You do the 98%. Now, here's another way to look at this. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. So we know that. But people leave off the very next verse. Which says, every single person in this room is God's workmanship. Piece of art, sculpture, beautiful building that he's working on day by day, every single day. And read this last part with me. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He prepared, he left us on this planet for good works. 
We're not saved by good works, but we're left on the planet to do God works, good works once we're saved. And he prepares them in advance. Like how far? 10 years. 20 years. Next week. The trick is to pay attention and participate with him. The third point is that we become conformed. Everyone say the word conformed. What does that mean? It's a process. It's a shaping. It's a molding. Can you see yourself in this picture up here? Every day God is shaping you. Don't jump off the wheel. Let him do his best work because he's not finished until the day you go home. Also, another way to look at it, he prunes us constantly. He cuts off which hinder us. And he adds or grafts in the things that we need. Can you see yourself on the screen? You are being conformed to what? Point four. To the image of his beloved son. The goal of the father's work in every child of his is that they would be what? Made like Christ. And the Father we used every single circumstance, every heartbreak, every setback, every victory, every win, every disappointment, every crushing loss toward this purpose. Don't waste any of them. <clears throat> Back in 1965, Naval pilot Porter Halliburton was shot down over Vietnam in October of 65. That's his picture. <clears throat> he was making a bombing run. Missile took him out of the sky. He was captured <clears throat> shortly thereafter, and he went to the infamous Hanoi Hilton, which was a place of starvation and torture. It was a desperate Desperate, desperate place. As a southern boy, he was raised in a culture where he was taught because of the color of his skin, he was better than people of other ethnic groups. He never thought about it. It's just how he was raised. Well, he got the surprise of his life when he got to the Hanoi Hilton his cellmate was an African-American man who had been shot down nine months before, Fred Cherry. And this is Fred's picture. When he walked in, and for weeks, they didn't like each other, they despised each other, they didn't talk to each other, they didn't trust each other. It was just misery all around but Fred was in bad shape and was slowly dying. Because of the crash of his plane, he had a broken arm that had never been fixed. 
He had a bit, he had a shoulder that had been ripped apart and was infected. He had an ankle that was shattered that he never got any medical attention. And he was just laying on a wooden bed in misery. He was running a fever. His shoulder was infected. There, the wound was open and the flesh around the wound was dropping off and rotting. That's the infamous Hanoi Hilton. <clears throat> Porter had enough. He took a deep breath. He went over to Fred and started caring for him in hopes of say, saving his life. He forced him to eat. He bathed him, carried him to the waste bucket many times of day. He cleaned out the wounds in that shoulder. And every night he would pick him up and carry him gently to his wooden bed and attempt to cover him up for the night. As poor Fred screamed. He helped him dress. He helped him bathe. He helped him take care of every hygienic need that a man could use in this hellish place. Among the squalor and the filth of this prison, and Porter kept talking to Fred to keep him alive, to keep him engaged, to give him hope. And the amazing thing is, over a period of time, they became closer than the closest brothers they had ever had. Later on, after they both got out of Vietnam, this is Fred's picture in the Pentagon where he's honored. Fred Cherry said Porter Halliburton is the reason his life was saved. And Halliburton saved, actually, it was the other way around. Because caring for my buddy gave me a reason to live. It gave me a daily purpose. It gave me something to focus on that was bigger than myself. Shaped into the image of Christ. Point number five. So that, everyone say so that. So that Jesus would be the firstborn of many, many brethren. You see, the father has a big house. The father wants children around his table. And he wants more and more to come because he loves people. And we should too. Point number six. We come back to that word again. And these he predestined. What do you mean predestined? There is a destiny that's already been determined. It's an eternal home, a place called heaven. It's a place where you and I were designed to live forever. This world is not our home. And whoever will choose to receive the Lord Jesus Christ to be pardoned of their sin can have heaven as their home. The scripture says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever 
would believe in him wouldn't perish but have life lasting. You see, there's a ticket to this place called heaven. It's already been paid for. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. It's already been paid for. Jesus Christ's last words on the cross, he said this before he hung his head and died. He said, it is what? It is finished. The New Testament was written in Greek. Those three English words or one Greek word, to tell us die, it's kind of like to telephone. Would you say that difficult word with me? To tell us die. It's a business term. It's a marketplace term. It's a real estate firm. It's a term. It's a banking term. It means paid in full. The ticket has been paid. Because he predestined us for us to be with him. Forever and ever. Is this making sense? Are you tracking with me? Is this giving you a sense of your destiny? Point number seven. Paul writes, he also called. Everyone say called. What does it mean to be called? It means that there's somebody trying to communicate. And he calls everybody. Because everybody has a purpose. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, which leads me to ask you if he's drawing you. Well, how do I know he's drawing? You feel it right here. Something's not right. Something's missing. You got a hole. You got a, something, a vacuum that's not filled and success and partying and having a kid and getting married and buying a new house. None of that fills it. He's the only one that can fill it. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice, I will come in and live with him. If he opens the door. I remember sharing the gospel with a man. This has been years ago. And I shared this verse with him. And I asked him, I said, have you been hearing the knock on the door of your heart? He just stunned me. He said, sure I have. I said, how long? He said, Seven years. And that brother knelt with me and gave his heart to Christ and lived a strong life for Jesus. So, do you feel the call? I think you probably feel it more than you hear it. Do you see the call? What do you mean, see it? There's events happening all around you. Somebody talked to you about Christ at work. Your grandmother sent you a letter and said she was praying for you. You got a job you should have never gotten because you're not qualified, but somebody helped you get that job. It's God working in the background. Here's a young man who was knocked off his horse. A voice, a brilliant Light, a voice said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. 
And then Jesus said this. Do you really think you can kick against the goads that I've been producing in your life? Do you know what a goad is? A goad, G-O-A-D. In the Middle Eastern culture, it's what a shepherd uses to nudge the sheep or push the cattle forward. Some of you, the Lord is using a goad to help you. Let him. And Paul goes on to say, in these whom he called, he also justified. This word justified is so important. It's used 30 times in the book of Romans. What does it mean, Steve? Well, simply, this is what it means. It is a legal term that says a guilty person is now made righteous in the eyes of the judge. It happens instantaneously. And it kind of looks like this. First, it is a pardon from all the guilt and penalty of sin. It's like the prison door being opened. You don't ever have to go back in there. It happens once. You've been justified. Second, the righteousness of Jesus Christ then gets transferred to your wicked account. Your wicked account is obliterated and now the Father sees your record through the eyes of Christ. That's imputation. And third, when you die because of justification, you now have the capacity to walk into the presence of a holy God as forgiven and blameless. That's justification. It is a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to try. Just receive the gift. Now, I want to add this, okay? So you track. Justification is different from this process of sanctification. Say sanctification. Sanctification is when the Holy Spirit now comes and lives on the inside and he starts cleaning you up. Your language, your thought process, your heart, your relationship. Because now you want to live a holy life. People tell me, I don't want to be that person anymore. I know I can get free because Jesus will help me. It is a process. It is a lifelong process throughout a believer's life, but it is distinct. Justified first, sanctification process second for the rest of your life and last. For those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is that? It is the last stage of salvation. It is the day you die. It is a day Stephen, this young preacher, was taken outside of Jerusalem, lined up against a wall and stone. And right before he died, he looked into heaven and he saw Jesus stand up to receive him. And I want to say, our last day on earth is our finest day. Someone say, 
Amen. Paul used the term glorified past tense. Why, Steve? I believe because he wanted to stress the certainty. For me to live is Christ. To die is even sweeter. So what's the future event? It's the day you see his face. For the Christian, death is not the end. Death is merely a door that you walk through quickly to see the one who loves you the most and to start your glorified life. Someone say, Amen. I'm going to ask our pianist to come up and let me tell you a closing story. May 10th, 1940. German troops rolled into the Netherlands. Tanks, trucks, fighters, bombers, And in about a week's time, they had swept the Dutch forces out and they were in control in a week's time. Once the Nazis were in control, the arrest started happening. After the arrest, people started disappearing and people started getting killed. There's a Dutch family you've probably heard of, the Ten Boom family. Here's a picture of them. They were concerned about what was happening in Amsterdam. As believers in Christ, they felt like they needed to do something, but it was risky. They said, we have to protect the most vulnerable, the apple of God's eyes, the precious Jews that God still has a plan for. So this small Christian family, this is a house they lived in. Papa Tin Boom had a watch repair business in the basement. She's in the first floor. See it? And the family lived upstairs. So here's what the family decided to do. In Corey Tin Boom's bedroom, they built a false wall. There was a tiny hiding place behind the false wall. They made it out of brick. They made it as thick as they could It was only 24 inches wide by six feet long. Here's a picture of elderly Corey Ten Boom kneeling to show you where the only entrance to the hiding place was. You went in a closet and at the very bottom, there was a false door that a person could barely get through. They cut out that section to let tourists see how big it was. So the Jewish people who were hiding would come out and eat meals and live their life and be with a Christian family. This is amazing. Are you ready? This family of six, it is believed, saved up to 800 precious Jewish people. The day came, though, because of money, a Dutch informant told the Gestapo 
what the Tent Boom family was doing. About six o'clock that night, the German stormtroopers were outside of their house kicking their door in. They arrested not just the Tent Booms, but 35 people in that neighborhood who were collaborators in saving Jews. And as they ransacked the house, they could not find a hiding place. So there were six precious Jews still in the hiding place and they stayed there for three days, no food, no water, until the Dutch underground rescued them. But the Christians paid for their service. Oldest sister Betsy died right before the war ended. Papa Tim Boom died very soon after he was arrested. And a nephew also perished in the concentration camps. Corey Tin Boom traveled the globe in over 60 countries for 30 years. I got to meet her in Tulsa. I got to sit with her and ask her questions. She wrote this book. How many have read the book, The Hiding Place? I suggest read it. And she tells this story. Her last Christmas in concentration camp was in Ravensbrück, Ravensbrück Prison. And there are some of the women in Ravensbrück. <laughs> that particular Christmas, there were Christmas trees that were outside between the barracks. But they didn't have Christmas presents under the trees. They had the dead bodies of prisoners of women who had died and they just didn't care. They just threw them underneath the trees, frozen in the cold. Corey attempted to share with her fellow prisoners in her barracks about the story of Christmas since it was Christmas Day, maybe to alleviate some of the suffering that they had, but not one of them paid attention to her. So she gave up and stopped talking. That night, in the middle of the night, she heard the voice of a child crying out. Mommy, Mommy, come to Oli. Mommy, help Oli. Mommy, Oli is so alone. She got up and found the child in the darkness, and it turned out not to be a child, but a young woman who was severely handicapped. And to comfort this young woman, Corey Ten Boom got in the wooden bed under a nasty blanket with her and spent that Christmas night with her, comforting her and telling her about the meaning of Christmas, that God came as a man, lived for 30 years, died on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sin and that she could find heaven if she would give her heart to Christ. She later wrote, years later when she was an old woman, I now realize in God's foreknowledge the reason he had me in Robinsbrook on Christmas 
1944 was for that handicapped young woman so she could hear about the Savior. I just want to ask you, this is our time of response. Have you heard his calling? Have you felt the need? Have you been justified? Have you been forgiven of every sin? As they lower the lights, I just want to lead in a simple prayer commitment. And there's people, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people watching online. And you can pray this same prayer with me. With your eyes closed, you can say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Come into my heart today to be my Savior and Lord. I give you my life. Give me a home in heaven and help me to serve you as you give me strength. In Jesus' name. Now these next moments, the altar is open. Do business with the Lord. Whatever he tells you, you do. If you need to repent, if you need to pray for a lost child, if God is stirring and you want to ask him what he's saying, This altar is open. rest of the worship team comes out let's continue to focus and listen and respond
Pick up your children. Have a great day.